the day before the surgery, I sent that letter out to 900 people <laughs> on my patient list. And being a, a doctor and sharing a health issue with them about me was really, really scary. I don't want to be cancer couple. Mm-hmm. I really don't. Like, that. I have no desire to be that. And I have no desire for you to be a Crohn's guy or a cancer guy. Like, mm-hmm. I just want us to be in love and in our creativity and let that story go. I'd never been in a monogamous relationship ever. I think it's crazy how so many people are okay with someone who cheats or they might not be okay with it. It's considered acceptable. You know what I mean? It's the taboo thing that they do. But when you do this openly, then we're the crazy people. I never, I never quite was able to understand that. My name is Andy Horning, and this is Elephant Talk. It's a show about all things relationship, the soulful, the silly, the stormy, and the sexy. Our couples today demonstrate a high level of communication. It's a cornerstone of their relationship to listen, to dialogue about important things. Orpheus and Indigo, married over two decades ago, live a polyamorous and BDSM lifestyle. Their story sheds a little bit of a light on this relationship structure and really speaks to the importance of open and honest communication. Larry and Macy met a little bit later in life. And just over a year ago, Larry was diagnosed with colon cancer. Their creativity in the face of cancer is astounding. One of my biggest fears in my whole life was getting colon cancer. And when I think about all the fears that I've had, that's the big one. And then it came. All of a sudden it was there. You know, I think about now how we are what we believe or what we focus on, and part of me wonders how unhealthy that was to be thinking about that and focusing on that fear. And I had the same thing because I had the fear when I met you that I was going to lose you. Like, I've had these fears all along that, oh, I finally found this most amazing person and then you're going to go away. And we've talked about that before we even found out about the colon cancer. I do this routine colonoscopy and all of a sudden we're in a surgeon's office and getting this frantic, diagnosis and treatment plan and surgery in five days and it just felt like so fast all of a sudden this fear I had my a good part of my adult life was just right there in front of us I think we both have pretty dedicated spiritual practices and in that moment it just felt like it all just went out the window I immediately thought, okay, we'll just get rid of that. It didn't seem like a big deal. And at the same time, once we knew that it was a challenge, I felt like immediately we leaned into love. Not to say that there weren't, like, instances every 10 minutes where I was sobbing. Once we got home, then I started to get a little more grounded and started thinking about, well, how are we going to navigate this? And then someone recommended Matt Kahn's video. Matt Kahn is a spiritual teacher. I was already getting cards. You can beat this. Fight this cancer. Kill it. You know, just real aggressive. And he was saying no. This is your body. Your body created this. You need to love your tumor. 
And it felt immediately so right for me to say that. I love you and thank you so much for these lessons that I'm going to continue to learn from you this, for the rest of my life. And I've got it from here. We're going to say goodbye to you in a few days. But until then, I love you and I want to learn as much as I can from you. And then you added some ritual to Matt's work. That's when we came up with the healing commandments. Like, love is an unlimited medicine. That was my one of my favorite ones. And then to be able to have a conversation with the tumor and access the wisdom. I drew a tumor that looked like a Mr. Peanut. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then being able to write down what you wanted to let go of because we were consciously giving the tumor like a cute little suitcase of things for you to like take away. You wrote the peanut on the envelope and then you tore up a bunch of pieces of paper. You told me, what do you want to get rid of with the tumor? And we wrote down things like resentment, entitlement, different things that I'd been already working with you know, around Crohn's disease, around my diet, just things I'd been struggling with forever. And then we went outside and we set it on fire and cried a lot. (laughs) And we recorded the healing commandments on our phones so we can listen to them in the hospital. Yeah, that was very grounding for me to be able to sit with you and, and say that. Yeah, listening to the two of us together just felt like I had your support, that I wasn't going through this by myself. And it just could have been a time of so much uncertainty, just feeling kind of lost, and it, it gave us a way of uh, something to anchor to. It, it gave me strength. I'm really emotional now because I'm we're coming to that year anniversary. On April 20th, I cherish that day beyond belief because that is the day that we first connected one email on through the online dating site. And I knew that you were a five-star candidate and you were the most amazing person on the planet immediately. I felt it. And your just pictures were so cute. The next day, April 21st, we got this diagnosis. And I felt immediate, like, terror in my body because I went from the happiest day of my life to the worst day of my life, officially. And the pain of recognizing that the greatest thing that I've created, I might lose. Like, you could die. My biggest fear that you would die. I mean, I felt so, so heartbroken. I think I was more in, in shock and, and definitely in kind of a selfish survival mode. I'm, I wasn't really... You know, my tendency was to just kind of, let's just deal with this on our own and not really share it very much. And and between you and the business coach I had at the time and some other folks, they kind of got me to a place of saying, of, of wanting to open up and let people know. And the day before the surgery, I sent that letter out to 900 people people on my patient list and 
being a, a doctor and sharing a health issue with them about me was really, really scary. I'm supposed to be the picture of health and and that stuff doesn't happen to me, which is silly, but that's kind of what I was feeling. And to share that would have been to, you know, just to show people that I'm not perfect and I have the same issues as everyone else. And I, I pressed that button to send it out and within seconds I started getting responses and I knew right away it was the right thing to do, to share and started getting those emails and started crying and really just genuinely feeling like people were sending love. A big teaching in this experience is, you know, being able to receive and ask for support when we're, we're neither one of us really likes to do that necessarily. I don't know whether it was just uncomfortable with people feeling sorry for me or but of course it's all stuff that I would want to do for other people and I kept trying to remind myself of that but being on the other end of it was really really difficult for me what we know is that like these experiences you can't really do alone I remember just watching you orchestrating things and trying to get me to eat and just being really stressed out when things weren't going the way you wanted to. At the same time, I was just so tired and feeling so crappy that part of me didn't care. And I'll never forget waiting for you to come up from surgery and then seeing the hospital bed with about eight people around it. I mean, you looked like a corpse. You were gray. I mean, I didn't know what was going on. I was crying my eyes out in the hallway and no one did anything. And you were shaking, you were so cold. You know, in the hospital, your creativity just kicked in though. Every day you'd write a new poster to put up on the wall, and I remember the nurses coming in, and at first they wouldn't even read them. And then once they started reading them, they were like, wow, this is, this is really cool stuff. And it helped a lot. And I remember at one point I needed a second blood transfusion, and... At first, I was thinking, wow, this is bad. I'm losing blood again, and, and this is really scary. And then I looked up at the poster you made that said, you decide what things mean. I remember choosing to shift and say, this is good. They know what's wrong with me and they're taking steps, and they're fixing it. This is a good thing. And I was able to make that shift from this is really scary, bad, to this is good. People do not survive those kinds of experiences if they don't have a really good foundation. I feel like we thrived, for the most part, leaning into each other. And then the intimacy did go out the window for a long time. I remember thinking, you know, how can we create intimacy in different ways right now? You know, not sleeping in the same bed, like really a delicate body in front of me. And, um, and I couldn't really go there. I just wanted to just lay there and watch the time tick and do meditations and listen to spiritual talks or just sit on the deck and listen to the birds. But I was pretty self-absorbed in just, am I going to be able to go to the bathroom today? <laughs> and am I going to be able to eat something today? And Intimacy was the last thing on my mind for quite a long time. Yeah. I never had any doubts that that was going to come back. And 
when we were able to connect intimately again, it's been so amazing. And I really feel like it's probably is like a major part of your healing too, for us to have more intimate connection, Mm -hmm. sexually. I think there was such a pervasive feeling of that impermanence and that fear of losing it all and, and trying to practice gratitude. One thing I learned is the only antidote for that fear of losing each other is gratitude that we have each other right now. And that's something that's been really heightened for me with the soul experiences. I do appreciate you and more and appreciate our life together. And every day is a gift. And, you know, it's always been that way, but it all comes back to gratitude and that choose love mantra that we have. You're listening to Larry and Macy's story of finding love later in life. I can be really mean and impatient and controlling when I am feeling this amount of fear. Yeah. And I'm trying not to react to that. It's so easy for me to take that personally. It's like I could respond and not react. And I can say this isn't about me. And I do feel I'm saying I'm sorry a little easier too. That's been a tough thing for me in our relationship. And and I feel like it's easier for me to say I'm sorry lately. I know I've got some work to do on that still. but I'm working on it. I know, it's time. I mean, that's the thing. We actually don't know how much time. That is an absolute truth. And if I can't say I'm sorry, we could lose a weekend to that. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to lose another weekend arguing and not being able to say I'm sorry. The greatest thing about us is that I do feel like we are the perfect pair. Like we're creatively aligned. We, the, the weirdnesses that we have even line up. I love our life. I love that we both adore tiny little weird animals. I love our style. I love our humor. I mean, people who meet us really do love us together. (laughs) (laughs) I feel so lucky. It's true. It's amazing how, you know, under all of that, it's what sustains us, Mm -hmm. you know. The, the, um, The creativity, it gives me so much joy just to see what you walk out of the bedroom wearing in the morning. And, you know, where I used to be like, you can't do that. (laughs) You can't (laughs) wear flowers and stripes and checks. And then I think, well, wait a minute, maybe I could do that too. (laughs) You've given me so much permission to be myself and to wear colors and to get crazy And all of a sudden, I'm getting all these compliments about, wow, I love your style. And it's like, yeah, I didn't even know this was my style. And it just brings me so much happiness living in that creative space with you. I mean, I used to dress up the chihuahuas in little turtlenecks that I sewed for them out of all different kinds Mm -hmm. of fabrics. And then I met you. And I I get to dress you up. (laughs) And immediately I gave you the nickname Teacup Jew because you're this tiny, adorable little Jewish chiropractor. (laughs) I love having the partner that really totally 
gets me for me. I mean, I spent decades feeling like no one could really understand me. I was feeling so weird and so much like I had to hide. And I've never felt like I needed to hide around you. And you paint your toenails. (laughs) You know, I think our general state of being has an underlying level of humor to it. You know, we've got these ridiculous chihuahuas and we've got these smush-faced Persian cats and we've got Macy dressed like a piece of abstract art every day and... And we make fun of each other and... We just keep making stuff up, like making a doll head into a lamp and just mm-hmm. thinking that's amazing and hilarious. <laughs> I mean, our altar has got unicorns and a zillion Marys and then Mary has kittens and... We got two sets of nativity scenes for right. Christmas. So we put the Josephs together and the Marys together and made a gativity scene. Yeah, I mean, that's like normal. (laughs) And to have our two Jesuses, then we have those together. Right, the return of the Jesus. Yeah. We're almost like theatrical in our humor, I think. The stuff we create is for us. Mm -hmm. Just for us to be able to wake up in the morning and see it and smile. and, And it's not really something we... It's all on display, but it's on display for us. While Larry treated his cancer with traditional Western medicine, he and Macy also treated it with their uh, unique blend of positive affirmations. And those affirmations felt as important as the doctors and the nurses. So did you want to read some of the posters that you made for me for the hospital room? The first one is is day one, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it says, my healing is already here. Now, now, now. now. <laughs> healing commandments. <laughs> Love, Love is, an is unlimited, unlimited medicine. medicine. I am committed to, to loving this moment. moment. I trust that my soul is evolving into my bigger purpose. Love is all that matters. My healing comes from receiving more love. I am seeing everything as love, and I receive love freely with gratitude. Every day, in every way, I am healthier, happier, and holier. So that was, well, this was probably the very first, because I put that in your room right when we got there. I like, I like this one a lot. Mm -hmm. My healing is time for my body to catch up with my spirit. And it feels like there's purpose there. And then here's the one you mention a lot, which is, I decide what all things mean with all the little swirlies around it. It's been a mantra for me because it's such a radical statement to realize that you can change your beliefs Uh around things. And it seems like for me, it's something that comes up all day long. What do I want to believe about this? Right. What does this mean to me? I want to share this one because this one made me laugh. The I heart my colon. Apparently, this is backwards. (laughs) But it still looks like a colon with some hearts in it and little squiggly lines to show that it's working to like help it to start doing its job. And then all the cheering it on Um, You rock. Thank you, Colin. You're important to us. I want to boogie with you. (laughs) We need you. And then my favorite one is, welcome back. Yeah, that was a good one. It took like a week for my my colon to wake up. So it was a good one to 
to look at because it has all those little action lines of, of that look like the colon is like vibrating and moving. Mm-hmm. My natural state is wellness. As I acknowledge it, my well-being expands. Yeah. Which is so great because it's just so easy to focus on the pain and the blood tests and all the yucky, scary shit. And to be reminded that if I focus on the wellness, that's what is going to happen. Just focusing on the good and then the good expands. Well, in our life too. I mean, this is what I want to be proponent for. I don't want to be cancer couple. Mm -hmm. I really don't. Like that is no desire to be that. And I have no desire for you to be a Crohn's guy or a cancer guy. Like Mm -hmm. I just want us to be in love and in our creativity and let that story go. We have the capability of creating the most amazing life. It's really beautiful to see how the things that attracted us to each other are also the things that helped us to get through this. The creativity and the love and the sense of humor were all things we used to navigate this. As I listen to Larry and Macy in their conversation that day, I'm aware of their commitment to grow as individuals and to grow as a couple. Uh, And I'm also aware that they feel and express so much gratitude gratitude for the life that they've created together and continue to create. You can also hear a zaniness, a humor to their approach to life and the everyday little things that bring them such joy. We move on now to Orpheus and Indigo, who on the outside have a very different relationship structure. But what they do have that's similar is a commitment to strong communication and a deep desire for growth through intimate partnership, through relationship. And you'll hear references to BDSM, which stands for bondage, domination, sadism, masochism, and MS, which means master-slave. And Just as a reference point, those are as much about the sex, which is only part of what that's about, as I came to understand it through their conversation, but it's also about what those things do to help foster intimacy, connection, growth, vulnerability in their intimate partnership. you, I realized that I didn't have to lie about who I was sexually as a poly person because I'd never been in a monogamous relationship ever. You know, even I I mean, as early as I go back when I was in kindergarten, I had a girlfriend and she had a boyfriend. Right. And then she bit my lip and that whole relationship came to an end. I don't remember ever having just one person in my life and then meeting you and you're like, you can have this if you want it. And, and and I'm able to be open and fully transparent what I'm doing, led us to be able to be in a relationship where we had me and you and Dawn as primary partners. Right. And then after her, we never thought that we would do this again. We never thought we it would. We thought it would just be us and our kids, right? Yeah. But it wasn't until we met Ema, who wanted to be a part of our life every day, that things really changed, is that we had one mother who wanted to be the educator, one mother who wanted to be the provider, and then me who was more of the disciplinarian slash friend kind of guy uh, working at home. Yeah. I think when when we met Ema, we were at a point in time in our life where the kids were old enough to understand 
what it was that we were doing, you know, without judgment. They were young enough to really not put their own stereotypes on it or or fall into the socio taboos. But they were old enough to where they could make up their own mind about it. Right. And also, if they were unhappy, they were old enough to be able to voice their feelings. And when talking with the kids and them now being so much older, you know, they're adults, they're grown people. At one point, they didn't understand that other people didn't have more than one mom. They right. thought everybody had, you should have more than one mom and you had one dad. Right. You know? So that was weird for them figuring out other people only lived with two parental units. When I talked to other people, they were very uh, leery about saying, oh, well, you you have your secondary or tertiary partner interacting with your children. What, you know, what is that? And because uh, I guess maybe other people do poly in a way that's, you know, I just date multiple people. Like, right. we, we have an open relationship and we we see each other out of the house, but we're the only people that... Interact act. with our children. Exactly. Yeah, I don't like that. If nothing else, I want us all to be able to be friends where we could, like, have a picnic and we all be in the same place. So if I can't have you at my house for a meal and we interact and there's children around the room, you know, then you can't be one of my lovers who's a part of this family. Because my children are part of this family. And if you have kids, your kids are part of this family. And I'm willing to be as much in your children's life as you are acceptable with having me. I'm proud of who I am. uh, And I want to be, why wouldn't I want my kids to see me, you know, care for and have loving dynamics with my partner? The way I treat women is the way it's going to factor in who they date and how they date. And how they allow someone to treat them. They learned love is what they learned. And it looks very different for everybody. And however you want to express it was okay. I think it's crazy how so many people are okay with someone who cheats. Or they might not be okay with it. It's considered acceptable. You know what I mean? It's the taboo thing that they do. But when you do this openly, then we're the crazy people. I I never quite was able to understand that. And it's somewhat socially acceptable, but for everybody to have a consensus, for you to say, I'm willing to be with this person and I'm willing to allow him to be with her as well. And I actually care for him and we have a loving dynamic. Nobody has a frame of reference for that. There was always someone there for me, always someone there for you, always someone there for them to support each other in whichever way that we wanted to. I mean, like every relationship, you know, there's ups and downs and you can remember great times. And I mean, it's just the being together, watching the silly sitcom that we all loved or when we would break off in groups and which was great with the having four people involved was generally one other person at least wanted to do the thing you were doing. So you usually had a partner mm-hmm. and sometimes you got you and even would be in the front room watching or doing whatever or packing for some camping trip that uh, Sybil and I were too much of a princess to go on. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a good thing because everybody could stay in their comfort zone, do what they like, had a good time, and there was always someone to share it with. That was great. I mean, just meals alone. As a society, very few people, I think, eat together right. as a family. And with it being all of us, we ate as a family, right? which I think brought us closer together. I agree. One of the best things that we did when there were problems is when we had the family meetings. Right. And we'd come together and we could talk about someone who was having an issue about something. And and in that time, it wasn't a time of judgment. It was a time to hear what was your problem. And then we could try and see if we can help with it. Or if the person didn't necessarily need someone to figure it out, they just needed to be heard. Mm -hmm. I also think blending our poly and our BDSM slash MS dynamic was good, too, because we can create a protocol or a structure around voicing whatever it is that you need. So a person can say, you know, have these feelings or these emotions that well up inside, but now they have a way of saying it. They have a process that they can go through. So it's not only establishing a protocol, but a ritual behind it, a meaning. So what does that mean? It means that I'm always going to do what's in, you're always going to do what's in my best interest as a friend, right? Not as a lover, not as a vested partner. You got to be the person that would listen to me and not just the person who I was mad at. I mean, I want it to be organic. I mean, you're going to grow regardless. And there's only two things that's going to happen. You're going to grow toward me or you're going to grow away from me. 
but I don't. I have to continue to get you to grow toward me, us to grow together while having another people in an environment where they feel comfortable right. with growing so that we all kind of intertwine and continue to do what it is that we're doing. I think where you've grown the most is the bulk of what you used to say before was what you didn't like. And coming out of the relationship that you came out of, I remember you you always saying that I really didn't have anything for myself. I never got anything. So you stopped asking for it because you wouldn't get it. I've always tried to make you feel like it's okay to ask for what you want. It's okay to say what you like. It's okay to say, I'm happy with this or, or I really like that. I love to hear you say, I like this, as opposed to saying, I hate that. I don't like this. Why would you ever do this? Or, uh, you know what I mean? Because you were very negative in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think I brought it to your attention a few years ago. And it took a few years, but I saw you really trying. I saw you in the moment stopping like, uh, okay. It's not easy to learn a new skill. It's very hard, especially when... It's not even a skill, it's a way of being. Well, it's now, I think it's now a way of being that I don't notice before. And then eventually it became being able to recognize that I was about to do it. Mm -hmm. And then once I recognized I was about to do it, inserting something else in its place that was more positive. Uh You know, I'm always so proud of you because you do that very well. And then the time in between your refining of who you've become over over the years has just been just so amazing, the process. I, I mean, really. You know what, though? I have to say thank you because you allowed the changes to happen and treated me according to my new me as opposed to the old me. If there's anything that I felt like that I really had to grow on was this idea that I'm, it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to be fallible. You know, I I felt like so long that I had to make all the decisions by myself, regardless as to who they impacted. It wasn't okay for me to say, I don't know, I'm scared, I'm confused. I'm the master, I'm the dominant. And I bought so much into the hype that I forgot that... You were a man? That was a man. This is not a show. This is not a sitcom. Father doesn't know best, and it was okay for me to be human. The major thing that I tried to, to let you know was that I will support you in what you're doing. And if you make a mistake, I'm not going to hound you on your mistake. Right. We're going to correct whatever needs correcting. I'm going to do what I need, or I'm going to allow you the space to not always be right. But I'm looking to you to lead. Right. But I understand that this is your first time through this world, too. Right. You, know? right. <laughs> you didn't get this manual or instructions on how it all worked. Right. So I get that you're going to not be perfect all the time. And sometimes in those choices that don't work out well, we learn some of our best lessons. Ima was a member of Orpheus and Indigo's poly family for a number of years and even helped raise their children. Her departure and the breakup of their family was a difficult time for everyone involved. I mean, up until recently, I carried the demise of that relationship around as being the catalyst for all your heartbreak and all your anxiety and all the the things that we didn't. I, I just couldn't let it go. You know what I mean? I'm like... Every decision hinged on me. And every time you were heartbroken behind those things, I'm like, I just broke her heart. Like, I got to make up to her. I got to do this. And I'm a horrible person. And I really couldn't get past it. I mean, we had the picture perfect family. You know, we had every. When it no longer existed, it was hurtful. It was horrible. You know, going through that big old apartment and it was quiet. Where's the fun? Where's the laughter? Sometimes I hear you crying because you were so, you know, missed the girls and in, in, in the family that we created. That was so hard for me. And I really, I, I didn't know what to do. I became like this drug addict just throwing women at the problem. You know, I'm like, hey, let's, let's have sex and have fun and just forget about everything because this is too new. It hurts too badly. Yeah, it wasn't until not that long ago that I just had to just tell myself to let it go. I think the the lesson is that you have to just feel the hurt when you feel the hurt. It's when you try and cover it with other things or throw other things at it or try and do something else, then you delay you feeling the pain. When you're a poly group dynamic, a committed, 
polygynous or polyandrous dynamic where you guys are a family unit, a live-in or damn near live-in polydynamic, and you have a breakup, you have to be able to let go of your stuff and let the person grieve who's grieving. Mm-hmm. And then when that person's uh, done grieving in that moment, if you need to grieve, they need to be able to support you. And I think that that was what we learned over a period of time because there would be moments where I'm okay and then you broke down. Right. And well, then you, I support you. You both can't be a blittering mess at the same time. Yeah. Well, I'm, but I'm just saying, like, yeah. that was a skill that we had to learn. We have a girlfriend. I think we can practically <laughs> say we have two. I don't know. What is Joss to you? I know she's your submissive, right? Yes. But we have a sexual relationship, all three of us. But I don't know if I'd say girlfriend because it's still new. very new. So she's a lover for sure. But I'm not quite sure how to put that. By our standards of poly, I don't believe that we have a poly partner because we don't have a living, full-time, committed relationship with a person. No. Right? We have so the we, outside. So we have partners who we have relationships with, uh, sometimes sexual, sometimes friendship. But I have relationship, MS and poly relationships, <clears throat> with a submissive. Who's a lover. Who's a lover I, of yeah. yours, too. Right. And then I have she, right. who I play with in a sexual slash BDSM context. And I have no relationship with her no at all. Other than with... the fact that I, I know who she is, I don't dislike her, but I'm not a part of you guys' dynamic. Right. And then we have Divinity and Cat, who's been around for like 10 years. That's the longest relationship we have. So I'm going to say we're in flux. Am I currently living a poly lifestyle? No. Or the lifestyle that I believe that I should be living as a polyamorous person. But you are no. living a poly lifestyle. Your poly unit doesn't look how you want it to look. No, I'm right saying according to my definition of poly, no. Because okay. I believe committed relationships, they're moving towards a shared family, okay. a common ground. Right, right, right. You're listening to Orpheus and Indigo discuss the dynamics of their poly master-slave relationship. <laughs> You know, I, I got to say that one of the defining moments in our life together was when we decided to go into the MS lifestyle, master-slave lifestyle, dominant and submissive. When we started going through it, and you know, for me, it didn't change as much as I thought it was going to be, you know what I mean? Because we had already had a lifestyle where kind of like a traditional 50s household where the woman had specific things and the guy was supposed to be this person. Mm-hmm. And there was a hierarchy amongst you you know me and you whereas you were subordinate to me right or supporting of of my leadership correct so when we got into the ms lifestyle i was like oh this is what they call what we're already doing right i think <laughs> we felt more secure in what we did we mm-hmm. didn't feel so oddballish right having this ds relationship it there's already kind of set rules or set things that are going to happen you know who's leading and you know who's following mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that one person is more important than the other because you can lead all day, but if you don't have anybody following, you're just walking. Yeah. (laughs) I think the other thing, too, is it provided us with a framework for for the lifestyle that we are living because we didn't know people our age who were living in the same way. Amongst our age group, to sit here and say, we're 50-50, this is equal, this is this, that, and the other. And truth of the matter is, there is no such thing as a 50-50 relationship, in my opinion. Sometimes it's, it's 51-49. Even if you share that and it changes who has 51, right. yeah, someone has to be the thing that says, this is what we're going to do. Exactly. Well, this is why I think that submission, and I understand that people get this, like, first of all, like, submission is a gendered thing, like, only women are submissive. And that is not true. And that is not true, because both men and women can be submissive. Submission and dominance are free-flowing between individuals, but the person who assumes responsibility and the person who usually assumes the submission is the type of dynamic we are in. But there's been moments, like when I was sick, that you had to step up and be like, okay, I'm, I'm driving the ship. We right can't now. go off course. Right. This relationship is still very important. It doesn't mean that you won't come back and steer it. It just means that right now, I just got a co-pilot. And also, the DS... Dominance and submission, uh, master-slave dynamic is not sexual. It has nothing, it's not contingent on how your sex is. It has nothing to do with sexual. It's it's the role that I'm going to play in your life. Right. 
It's the person I'm going to be for you in this relationship. In the same way that we could have a relationship where you're a stay-at-home mom and I go to work on a regular day, you take care of the kids and I do that, and we say we're in a heterosexual, maybe traditional relationship, that doesn't mean what we do in the bedroom. No, they're not the same. A lot of people think that the term submissive means complacent or doormat or someone who's going to be subservient. And then they see you and they're like, well, wait, which one of you guys is in charge? Submissive means to me that I have chosen someone who I will submit to. And it's not everybody. It's this one man sitting in front of me. You are that for me. You are everything for me. And I don't have a problem with following your lead, supporting you, uh, taking care of you. I find that is how I show I love you. I think being submissive or slave, which is what I identify as, means that you have to be a strong individual because in case something happens, I need to be able to keep this boat rolling. Mm -hmm. You know, I need to make sure that we're still okay. So if I can't manage to make my own meal and eat during the day without you telling me, then that is a problem. Mm -hmm. I, I need to be self-sufficient and be able to manage the world, but still be able to say to you, you are master. Where do we want to go? I, I think for me, too is I want an empowered human being to be with. You know, I think the biggest mistake that a lot of people make is they got this idea that my submission is a gift and I give myself and I, I don't believe in that shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> I like, I I'm like, you keep this shit for yourself. I don't need it. I'm not giving away my dominance. I'll allocate it. But if you want me to share in what it is that you have to provide, share it with me. You know, I'll be happy, but if this is where you derive power from, if you think that this is powerful, you keep it because I want an empowered human being. I want to be with an empowered woman, someone strong. Just because I'm a shepherd don't mean I lead sheep. I want that person to be strong because it makes me want to be a stronger person for them. I don't want somebody to lower or lessen themselves so that I can feel like I have a place on the hierarchy above them. That's bullshit. Well, I see it as you provide me with the, with the safe space for me to be all the facets of me. Mm -hmm. You take care of me in a way that allows me to be better. Mm -hmm. I asked Orpheus and Indigo, who are African-American, how they feel about using the term slave in the MS lifestyle. The ideal of slavery is not the same antebellum slavery model that we had before the Civil War. You are willingly self-indenturing yourself to another person because this is the person that you want to be with. It is a way of showing reverence and honor to your partner. That level of dedication that we're talking about, to me, is what we're articulating as slave. I really wish there was a better word to do it. And I know it fits the, the sexual motif and fetish of power exchange and, and saying like a total power dynamic. But really what it is to me what it means to be a slave is to willingly put another person first. And honestly, if we didn't call it slave, it would still exist because there was times when I was in a relationship with somebody and I was thinking, oh, I'll do anything for this person. I want to buy them everything and I want to do this and I want to do that and I want to be their everything. That's the same thing that slaves articulate that they want to be. And there's always somebody who we used to call it being whipped back in the day. So you, <laughs> you pussy whipped, you head over heels for that person. It's the same thing. It's self-indenturing. I may not feel that way for anyone else, but for that person, this is who I'm going to be to them. That's how I feel. To you, this is who I am for you. I'm whatever it is you need at that time, including if what you need is someone else. Right. That's strong. I think nowadays so many people are in things that can easily be replaced by the new model. Right. I don't think they get the deciding that this is where I want to be. I think that we find value in the commitment that we had. I'll be here the next 10, 15, 20 years until God takes me off this planet and I'll be here with you right by your side. I remember jealousy coming up in the very beginning, eclipsing what we were doing. You know, like we had to stop everything to, to deal with jealous matters. But the thing that I think I learned, and you tell me if you feel the same way, jealousy is not one thing. You know, it's a catch-all for any emotion that's contrary to what we feel we're supposed to be doing. I think that jealousy is like an emotion, an energy that comes up within you that says, 
I'm not feeling comfortable with the dynamic that I'm being a part of or what's happening at this moment in time. And if you use that energy to say, let's have a conversation. Here's how I'm feeling. Here's my emotions here. I think jealousy can be a very productive thing. I think that time that you and Lily were at the house and I was thinking, okay, I'm feeling jealous. And then afterwards, way afterwards, I realized that what I was feeling was loneliness. And I was feeling unwanted. And left out. And left out. My idea is always to try and get something and share it uh, with you. And, and at that moment, person, it was us. Somebody, they were like, I don't want you to be a part of this. And I'm like, hearing I don't want or feeling unwanted was something I never felt in our relationship. Mm-hmm. I can articulate now. I mean, I don't think we've ever really discussed it. No, no. But it took me a long time to be able to sit here and say, you know, how I actually felt because I was able to chalk it up as jealousy, but not able to look deeper beneath the toppings until until now. I think every time we have a conversation, I do learn more about your current perspective. It's like, ah, I didn't know she feel like that. Oh, okay, I didn't realize that. You know, and I get a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. I guess one of the main things I just want to say is that thank you for loving me how you love me and allowing me to be all the things that I am and not just one. Love you too, baby. I know. (laughs) How does one create intimacy in a relationship? What does it look like? What does it mean to develop a bond, a connection, a level of trust? with another person. Certainly there are many ways that can happen. Orpheus and Indigo have a unique way of doing it. I gained respect for them through their conversation. Both of our conversations this week bring such compassion, such self-awareness, such deep commitment and a desire for growth. Thank you to Orpheus and Indigo and Macy and Larry for sharing their stories with us. For additional information and resources on this episode, please check out our show notes at elephanttalk.org. Elephant Talk is produced by Kim Paletti. Our theme music is by Rob Berger. Audio production assistance provided by Leslie Guest and Bird and Josh Kern. Please review the show in iTunes. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Andy Horning. This is Real Love. This is Elephant Talk.